0: Hello everyone and welcome to Building Resilience. Today I'm honored to welcome Ranjay Gulati, Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School. Professor Gulati, welcome to Building Resilience.
1: Thank you so much for having me today, I'm delighted to be here.
0: I'm very thrilled to be starting this with you because you have studied this for such a long time.
1: Yes, thank you, it's a pleasure again. And, you know, we're talking about something that is very near and dear to my heart. So I am actually delighted to be discussing this with you and having a chance to kind of try to crystallize and distill everything I've done uh, in as quickly as we can.
0: I am curious, you have first started uh, and studied economy and then IT. How did management studies and organizational resilience studies and then your focus on resilience come about?
1: So I think, you know, nothing is ever linear. Sometimes it has non-linear and uh, under, underpinnings to it. And then when you look back, it all makes sense uh, somehow magically. Um, so some of it is, I think, circumstantial. But if I look back, my interest in organizations and their success and failure comes from having seen a family business, which was uh, my mother started. And it was a fashion business uh, that she began. And I was uh, must have been a kid. I mean, I was like 12, 13 years old when she began this. And I worked in her business and she grew it extremely fast. Um, She had super success in the marketplace, but then she struggled to scale it, to professionalize it, to put in place managers and systems and structures because she was more of a creative person. So this thing grew, 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 and then everything was going crazy. And so I watched a business thrive, grow, and also then decline and shut down because in the end, she went back to designing only. So, you know, you have these formative experiences, and I saw this all the way through high school and college. And so when you have this kind of uh, formative experiences early, you get to see businesses grow and then fail. And then I spent, uh, and then I worked as an intern at Microsoft. It was still a smallish company back then. And I saw similar kind of uh, i wouldn't say ch- structured chaos uh, but i also saw them trying to put structure and systems in place and how they did that and how they brought in professionals and how do you hold on to that entrepreneurial spirit while you're also trying to grow up and 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 so i saw both success and failure and i started to then look for patterns of enduring success. What do organizations that want to sustain success? Because at that time I also started, as I started researching companies, I started seeing companies like Motorola, like Sears, like Kodak, which were iconic companies that had huge presence in markets, defined markets, failing. And the and the list of companies didn't stop. You know, you can go to Nokia. You know, you can go further down and look at some of the automotive companies that are struggling to deal with it, the transition to electric vehicles. So, you know, to me, it was interesting to watch the ebbs and flows in businesses in their in their lives. Uh, and, and so that became an intriguing question to me as time unfolded.
0: Reading your works and reading the works of other researchers, there, there is one question that I still have. Is there an ultimate goal in resilience? Is it to have this enduring success? I even thought of, is it more to be to gain a sort of immortality? Or is it like we do with the environment, more to gain a balance or stability? Or are we talking about flexibility or all of right. them? <laughs>
1: So now you're asking a very deep question. I wish I had an answer to that uh, in an easy, short form. But if you look at great businesses, they're usually built around an idea. And the idea is, most of the time, not about let's go make a lot of money. Usually the idea is around having an impact, doing something that really impacts your customers' lives, your community's lives, or some combination thereof what loosely people now call purpose or even a mission, right? And Or, or some would call it intent. And, and I wrote an article uh, last year in the Harvard Business Review called The Soul of a Startup. And I explored this idea that you know businesses usually have a holding on to some notion of how they want to make a difference in the world. And so... Shareholder value, economic success, these are byproducts of wanting to have a positive impact on the world. So in my mind, resiliency is the ability to continue to have a positive impact on the world.
0: Okay, so it's not so much about whether you're stable or flexible, but just continue to be doing and somehow promote your mission and forward your mission. Even yeah, if that I mean, means... flexibility
1: in all our enablers. So, so let's separate the end goal from the enablers of that end goal, right? So I think if you're saying that, you know what, my hope is to be a purpose-driven organization that continues to drive impact on the customers and communities that I have chosen to be serving. and And then the question is, how do I do that? and And that's where you have to start to deal with these issues of understanding resilience and the enablers of resilience and flexibility, because if you are have a an, a horizon like that, then your the markets around you are changing, the customers are changing, the competitors are changing, the regulations are changing, the technology is changing. And how are you navigating and staying true to what you wanted to do?
0: I've noticed that in different languages resilience is translated in different ways, right? So for example, in more Latin languages, it's more translated as resistance. In my language in, in Romanian, it it feels like you're building a wall, right? And in in French is résistance. Whereas in the English language, it's more as you said towards flexibility. But also in some languages it's about survival or about doing something better and at the end of of adversity coming out in a better shape, so really transforming that uh, problem into an opportunity how how should we look at uh, organizational resilience from this respect
1: <laughs> yeah so now that's a great question and and I think let me answer you've already given the answer I think so I'm going to repeat what you said in some ways but the narrow view of Resiliency is the ability to survive through adversity, Mm -hmm. right? So that you're able to survive. And, And I think that's a very narrow definition because if I look at it, resiliency is not surviving through adversity. It's thriving through adversity. And if you look at great companies, they use adversity to gain advantage. Now I'm gonna tell you about another piece of research I did, which was in 2010. And it was with uh, two co-authors of mine. One is uh, Franz Volgazogan and the other one is Nathan Noria. And we looked at companies going through recessions and we looked at several recessions going back and we wanted to see what happens to companies as they go through a recession, because you know some percentage are not gonna make it, right? And what we found was that's true. Roughly around 18% don't survive a recession on average. This is the average number across three recessions, but all public, and these are public companies. And then you see that the vast majority that make it come out of it, but three years after the recession, they still haven't recovered to their pre recession levels in terms of sales and income and growth. But then you find that they're roughly a small percentage, like about 9% on average who come out of recession stronger than when they went in. So they use adversity to get ahead. So what we need to think about in resilience is not that, oh, I'm able to survive lots of changes and upheavals around me, no. I use moments of upheaval to move ahead. I understand that these are moments of transition uh, and these are opportunities to really significantly, because everyone else goes into a defensive mode. Um, so I think that's a, it's a very important distinction you're making between how we think about resiliency for gaining advantage.
0: You were talking about these 9% companies that actually managed to thrive. What did they do differently?
1: Several things, I think. The first issue that I outlined in that paper was the ability to play offense and defense at the same time. Companies generally, when facing adversity, go into defensive mode. What in sports they call playing not to lose. Right? Instead, what you need to do is you have to do some of that. You have to cut costs. You have to manage your costs. But are you able to, at the same time that you're cutting costs, also playing offense? And this is not easy because if you look at the the politics of budget and resource allocation systems and organizations, they either know they are very homogeneous thinking. Either you're cutting costs or you're trying to invest for growth. You're not doing both. You're not saying I'm going to take from Peter to give to Paul. So it's a it's a loaded topic. But these companies understand that, that they have to be placing bets for growth even in down markets, which may mean cutting even deeper to free up resources for these new opportunities. So that's one part of the story, uh, which is just around kind of managing your investment profile. I think there's a deeper issue that I've come to realize more recently is that these enduring companies have a very strong sense of mission and purpose. And in the midst of lots of change and turmoil, it gives them directional clarity. They're not confused. They're not getting pulled in different directions. They're not chasing every shiny penny they see on the ground, right? There's directional clarity. It also aligns the people who work for you because when you're mission-driven, people get it. They understand what you're trying to do. And so you are able to align your people. You're able to align your resources. And so I think this orientation towards having clarity and an anchor also helps you in these moments of turmoil and it makes you more resilient
0: you are talking about uh, uh, different things right about the slack having additional resources to use them to play offense you are talking about purpose and mission and having that focus and knowing what you're going to do next is there one more important than another or they're just as important <sighs>
1: I think they play off of each other, right? When you have a stronger purpose orientation, then you are much more confident and comfortable making hard trade-offs. You see, the piece that I think people don't understand when we say, oh, well, life is win-win. Well, there is no, it's very hard to first of all have, win-win is confused, first of all, what does win-win really mean? People think win-win means no trade-offs. That's not true, right? Life is all about trade-offs, and business is all about trade-offs. So you're trading off one thing for another thing. And the question you're trying to ask yourself then is that in this world of trade-offs, what are the trade-offs we need to make? And it's much easier to make those trade-offs in some coherent, intelligent fashion when you have that purpose orientation to begin with.
0: Out of these companies that actually manage to thrive in adversity, How did they make it and how did they make it come alive in their companies? Because I have seen a lot with beautiful mission statements, beautiful values plastered on the wall, but no alignment, zero alignment,
1: right? And your observation observation is borne out by data. People are now measuring it and finding that, you know, when people are asked, CEOs are asked, how important is mission purpose to you? And they all say, yes, 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 yes. And then then they survey the employees in those organizations and almost nobody even knows what the purpose statement is, right? So it becomes kind of this cheap slogan, tagline, it's a checkbox. I think people underestimate and don't fully understand how a leader and an organization can leverage its purpose. I think it's not out of any malicious intention that people are playing what is called purpose-washing. I think it's out of ignorance. We don't know any better. I don't think we understand how having a purpose and mission can activate in people, the employees, a different sensibility to how they think about work, how they show up, what they do. It changes your sensibility around making those trade-offs around other community, your community around you. So we all talk about, oh my God, we have to do ESG, we gotta do CSR, we gotta do this, that, and the other. I think you get much more clarity around those sets of issues also. Um, I think is just not well understood. And unfortunately, you know, the cynics who feel this is just uh another smoke and mirrors game by business, some of them may be justified. And sometimes we play into that. I mean, if you look at the business roundtable in the US, the largest companies signed a statement last year saying, that our purpose is no longer just about shareholder value. But then the question becomes, what have they done since they did that? And how many people in those companies actually buy into it? So whether we do it individually or we do it collectively, I think, you know, this is a huge issue that how do you take what may just be a slogan? I think absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, the question you ask is is an important one, that what is the role of purpose in times of adversity? You know, does it really matter? And and why now? And and I think it's important to understand that in times of adversity is when you, you know, when things are in flux. and, And you're looking, people are looking for some sense of continuity when everything around you is changing. Right? And so what does purpose do? It gives you kind of an anchor. It creates a sense of continuity between the past, the present, and the future. It helps you differentiate what you do from what not to do, and it motivates people by reminding them of the ultimate goals of the organization. Now, I want to be very clear that purpose is one piece of the resilience puzzle. The other piece that we talked about was customer centricity. That's what I talked about. That You know what? In this purpose, you also have to connect into customer connection, right? Who are our customers? How are their needs shifting? What do we need to do for them? And then you turn into this uh, the ability to have flexible resource allocation systems that ties into it as well. So they're different, I think, paths. And I think they're interconnected in some way. Let's step back for a second. Resilience as a concept has, is, was really developed for individuals, right? For individual human beings. And, and there's a huge body of work on personal resilience Um, You know, one of my colleagues, Joshua Margolis, has written about it. Uh, Martin Seligman at the University of Pennsylvania has written about it. There's a number of, I would say, first-rate scholars who have done excellent work around this topic. I think we need to understand what does that mean for organizations and how do you build that kind of muscle, if you will, in an organization. As we discussed, it's really about having not only the ability to endure adversity, but to thrive in adversity. And then you're looking for the enablers of that, if you will, resilience. I think it's in, and what ends up happening is, I think, is we need to ask ourselves that does my organization? And you can s- see this is growing evidence around the churn of companies in the S&P 500. We see kind of companies derailing. We can talk about it in innovation terms. We can talk about it in change management terms. We can talk about it in bad strategy, bad implementation terms. I have my personal bias. I like the idea of resilience uh, because I think the bar here is not, are you surviving? Are you still in the S&P compared to other companies? How long have you been? It's not survival. That is the the question I'm interested in. I think, are you thriving through these times? Are you continually reinventing yourself? You know, How are you reshaping yourself in some fundamental way as the markets change around you. And you can take some examples. So if you look at Netflix, you know Netflix began as a DVD rental business going after Blockbuster. But as soon as they knocked out Blockbuster, DVDs themselves started dying because everything was moving towards streaming. So Block, Netflix now had to kill its own DVD business and become a streaming company. They even tried at one point to split them out, which they didn't succeed to do. But they got into streaming. But the moment they got into streaming, they realized that, oh, well, you know, you can't regulate consumption. You're streaming, so you can't regulate consumption because people can binge watch. And Netflix is having to pay fees, licensing fees to the content owners for every viewing. Meanwhile, the customer only wants to pay a flat monthly fee. So you are really in a jam. So they say, oh, we got to get into content production. Right. So you're shifting your model around. At the same time, they're saying we want to be global. Even though conventional wisdom was every country, people are very particular about what they want to watch for entertainment. The Indian wants to watch something different than what the Dutch wants to watch or the Romanian wants to watch. But they were able to do that. So they're saying we're going to have local content, we're going to switch out of DVDs to streaming to content production. So, how do you enrich yourself through changes in the markets around you? What are those enabling elements? Is it your culture? Is it your purpose? Is it your customer focus and resilience? Is it the organizational architecture that remains very adaptive and agile? So, how do we think about Doing that, and and, um, a second example is Microsoft, where Satya Nadella has done a great job in trying to revitalize Microsoft through a strong sense of purpose and culture. Um, And when I I interviewed him, he pointed out, he said that, you know what? Strategy and structure can change. They change all the time. Technology is changing so fast. We've got to change our strategy. We've got to change our structure to keep up with these changing markets. But as you put your organization in so much flux, You need to have some constants, some kind of constants around you. And the two pillars he talked about to me were purpose and culture. Those become kind of the people want to have those kind of some stability in the face of lots of change.
0: For sure. And as an employee, if you don't feel that your company has a purpose, you don't feel that you yourself have a purpose and bring any meaning you and have any meaning in your job, yeah. right? Once you feel that your company is there and has a purpose, and it somehow permeates whatever you are doing, then for sure you can you can push things in the same uh, in the same direction. Is there a way to start? So if someone says, okay, where am I right now? what should they look for? Is it good to think about their customer? Am I really focused on the customer? Or is it good to, to think, hey, do I really have the resources to play both office, offense and the defense? Um, is my purpose really permeating through, through through the organization? Is there a better place to start to think about where they are in terms of their resilience and if they can still perpetuate their, their, their purpose?
1: So let me give you a sense of this. I think is that... Uh... I always think that the best place to start is asking yourself, why do we exist? What's our reason for being, right? Remember, there's tactics, there's strategy, there's vision, there's values and behaviors, and the other fundamental thing is why we exist, right? I think it's important because from that question, because in that why we exist question, right, you're able to address not some existential abstract ideal but it's very concrete if you do it right it's about having a clarity on which markets and customer value propositions you're going after right and so you understand your target customers and your value proposition that's part of your purpose what is the problem you're trying to solve right or as my late colleague clay christensen talked about it right what is that customer what is the customer hiring you right for what and, and what issue in their lives are you addressing? So it helps you get to that customer question, right? It also helps you get to the resource allocation question, right? So you're able to get to the resource allocation question. So you get to the customer question, the resource allocation question. It allows you to get to some of these tougher issues that all permeate from a clarity around Why do we choose to be, right? Uh, and, And in that same statement is also your, what I would call is not just your commercial purpose, but is your social purpose. So you have clarity around your commitments to community, to society, to the environment, and to customers and to your employees and to your shareholders. So let's not forget shareholders, right? All of these things are connected. So when you try to put some clarity around that, it allows you to confront where you really need to focus your energies and how are you going to balance the, what may look like competing demands of these various stakeholders to whom you have commitments.
0: Very clear. And you are also talking in your book about the five levers of resilience. How do they come into play? And how should, we, how should organizations use these levers, right? The coordination, cooperation, cloud capabilities and connections.
1: So when I wrote that book, which is now more than 10 years ago, the big realization I had was how few companies were actually customer-centric. Even though it's a basic, simple idea. We teach that in business schools in lecture number one, right? Your businesses exist to serve customers. If you don't do that, then you're not in business anymore, right? So we kind of lay that out. And yet we still found that most companies struggle with this idea Um, or they talk about it, but really don't do much about it. There is very little alignment around it. If you ask people in the company informally, they'll say, no, 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 you don't want to study us. So That was, to me, the, the starting point. And then I discovered that when you really pushed it, they would say, our problem for growth is not the market. Yes, we like to blame the market, saying, oh, too much competition, too much uncertainty, too much technology changes, too much regulation, too much this, too much that, sales channel, channel conflicts, this, that. We have a lot of issues to sell more in the market. But if you really ask me, what are the biggest bottlenecks? It's us. We are our own worst enemy. The devil is within, not outside.
0: And so, so can we reduce organizational resilience to individual resilience and individual contribution and leadership?
1: Or so it wasn't that. Big... I wanted to stay at the organization level. So when mm-hmm. you look at coordination, cooperation, those are ideas saying that there are impediments that are baked into the organization itself. So the starting one I talked about was silos. Then organizations, we create silos to manage division of labor. So we have boxes and arrows to manage an org chart. We need them. They create accountability, focus, and all that good stuff. But at the same time, they also ossify and make it hard to have collaboration and slow down the organization and create tremendous internal focus. People spend much more time managing the silos than they have time for customers. So the larger question there was really at the organization. Now you take it to the next question, which is of the individual level. And the individual level, I think, is uh, is an interesting question. How do you connect people's individual sense of purpose and resilience? to the organization right how do you connect these two and and i think that is where the final rub is because how do you get people to express and have that personal sense of purpose while living the organization's sense of purpose And I think this is what organizations are challenged with today, because a lot of millennials want to feel that sense of purpose. Now, what if my purpose is to climb Mount Everest and it's not to come to work that much? How am I going to manifest that in my work life? Or how do I create that sense of pride in my work? And ambition, yes.
0: Did you find any good uh, tips and tricks for organizations to build this or at at an individual level?
1: I think organizations are now confronting this question much more directly. First of all, they want to make the idea of having a purpose discussable, right? They are are not saying leave your personal life behind when you walk in the door. The, The fact that I'm willing to even have a conversation with an employee about what is your personal purpose is a remarkable step forward. And then to say, I want to help you in any way I can to live your personal purpose. And by the way, we as an organization have a purpose also. So having a purpose conversation makes everyone feel and act more intentional and deliberate in what they're doing and why they're here. Versus, you're here to do a job. Um, and and you may have seen there's some work by uh, Jane Dutton and Amy Druznitsky from Yale and Michigan, um, where on job crafting and they look at people's orientation towards work, and they talk about three types of orientations towards work. One is my work is a job, I do it for money. Second is my work is a career, because I want to advance and get ahead. And the third one is my work is a calling. I do it because it gives me intrinsic meaning. Of course, the last one is the Holy Grail. And how do we tap into that for individuals will help us become more resilient as an organization because when you have a workforce that is coming at work that way.
0: We are just going through a crisis right now, but it's going to end at the same time, right? It was a crisis really at the beginning, somewhere up to maybe May. Uh, June and right now, even though there's a second wave and so on, we seem to be getting out of it. So companies will start to think about their growth more and more. One of the reasons why we started this series. Is there something they should be doing right now to make sure that they are thriving when when they're out of this? That they are able to play offense as well, that they have the right resources. Is there something that they should be afraid of? Something that plays against their resilience? Any kind of suggestions you would give them?
1: So first of all, I think, uh, let's be very clear. The crisis we are talking about is unique in human history. Right? We've never had a global health crisis of this magnitude ever. Even the Spanish flu was the Spanish flu. It was not a global flu, right? We're facing a global crisis that is unprecedented in modern times. You know, the the CEO of Starbucks, Kevin Johnson, a few months ago said, if we come out of this crisis unchanged, we will have missed a huge opportunity. Right. So so many businesses are using this time to transform themselves. Right. How we work, and this is not you can take the obvious example. Okay, say, okay, say Zoom or Microsoft Teams or Peloton or a few other kind of there are some obvious examples, but there are others that may be a little less obvious. So for instance, grocery stores, some of them are moving towards curbside pickup. Restaurants too. You see a dramatic increase in that. Or if you look at airlines, how air travel will manifest in the future is something that is still to be determined. Business travel isn't really back yet, right, in the way it was. So how are we going to think about that? How is work going to change? You know, there is a percentage of people, I don't know what that number is going to be finally, that is saying, I want to work from home. I like it. Now, what does that mean for your talent? That means that maybe you don't need to co-locate all your talent at headquarters. Maybe you can have people working from, you want to find somebody who's really good but doesn't want to relocate. Sure, you can work off. So, you know, you're looking for ways to transform in meaningful real ways that align with where this crisis has taken us. It's tragic. It's I think it's something that we should remember. Another piece of this is, This is also brought to the forefront, the role of business in serving as a positive force in society. It has to step up. I think we, for the longest time, we hide behind the idea that businesses serve shareholders and governments take care of society. And government's job is to tax the business, get some money from them, and then redeploy it in whatever way they so choose. And that is going to continue. I'm not against that. I'm saying absolutely government has a critical role to play in deploying resources to serve those in greatest need and also creating an infrastructure and a context in which we all operate. So the regulatory context, another context. But I think that does not absorb business from saying, I have no responsibility. I can pollute, I can do this, as long as I'm within the law, I'm okay. And I think this crisis has shown how many companies, many companies have stepped up and embraced this idea that I have a larger responsibility.
0: Being stagnant, not changing, just playing defense and not bringing value to society are definitely two enemies to resilience. Sooner or later, they will catch up.
1: I I agree with you, but one has to ask, what drives that stagnance? There is usually something else that is driving that stagnance and inability to change, that inertia. We all talk about inertia and inability to change, but it's not just a given. What leads us to become inertia? What happens? We become successful. right? We become arrogant. We become indifferent to our customers and markets. We lose sight of our purpose. Right? We create bureaucracies and silos that become internally oriented rather than externally oriented. And so you can see there is a kind of a cascade of pathologies that combine and lead to that kind of uh, outcome.
0: So really looking inwards and reflecting on what you are doing, why you are doing it, how this can propel you forward or keep you stagnant, that is the first thing to do about and to realize where you are and what you need forward. Absolutely. Coming out of this year, is there some new thread, new line of research that you think will be very important when you talk about resilience? Something that really raised your interest and you say, hmm, this is interesting. I never thought about resilience like this. Let's see. Uh, let's, let's dig deeper.
1: I'll give you a a related construct that is on my mind a little bit. And it's another buzzword. You know, we use it all the time. We don't really know what it means. We kind of throw it around. And I think it's going to be around this notion of courage. You know, if you look at the body of work on courage, you know, courage is not the absence of fear. It's the ability to take action in the face of fear. And what we don't understand is what gives some leaders and some organizations the capacity to take bold, decisive, courageous action. We tend to lean in on caution, conservatism, I'm not saying we become reckless, but I think fear has a tendency and an ability to blind us and freeze us sometimes. And if you look at what you're gonna see in resilient organizations going forward will be the ability to take courageous action.
0: I'm looking forward to the research thank you so much for today is there something that maybe I didn't ask you and you would have liked to discuss with me and the audience
1: I think you know for me the learning has been I am deeply inspired by actually for the last 10 years I've been involved in our senior leader program at Harvard Business School called the Advanced Management Program and This program brings in about 170 people twice a year, so about 350 or so uh, from all over the world, about 40, 45 countries. And so through this program, over my 10 years, I've had a chance to come across and meet some incredible leaders who have also become my students. And through their eyes is how I really understood the power of understanding resilience in organizations or lack thereof. And and the notion that businesses that are resilient, what makes them resilient? How do we understand resilience? I think... um, A lot of it comes from my engaging with my students in an ongoing conversation. So I think I have a big debt of gratitude to my students from whom I have learned a lot uh, about resiliency in the last 10 years.
0: Thank you so much.